And although Palm Sunday is joyful and it's a celebration, we come to a really hard text today uh, in Mark 10. And it's incredibly difficult. It's a passage that speaks about divorce. And so it's going to be a little bit challenging. But I hope that you see as we progress through the message today, perhaps it is entirely intended by God that this message would fall on Palm, on Palm Sunday, the day when Christ came to his people as the king. So hopefully you see that today in, as we step through this passage about divorce. And it's not a topic that I take lightly because I recognize that many in this room have been affected by divorce, have gone through a divorce, perhaps the, their families, you've seen your family fall apart through divorce. I recognize that divorce is one of the most painful human experiences. It's usually preceded by years of relational pain. It sends shockwaves over your children, over your family members, over your friends, and it cuts to a person's very identity, a divorce. You're left asking yourself these questions. What is wrong with me? Was I not good enough? What does my life look like now? Am I even lovable? You've seen the pain affect your children. You've seen a pain, the pain affect your friends. Your friends, perhaps they've become acquaintances since it all happened. Perhaps you feel like you can't even relate to them anymore because they don't understand your situation. You feel judged when you come in these doors at church. And so it's really hard. The reminders of pain and failure are everywhere, looking to jump out at you. And divorce, from what I understand, is a living hell. And the American Psych Psychological Association says that 40% to 50% of all marriages will end in divorce, church not excluded. One in four people, one in four marriages in divorce, or maybe half. That's staggering. There are no-fault divorces. There are magazines and blogs that will help you figure out the best way to get divorced. Endless counselors and even pastors who will encourage you that divorce is the best decision for you. Because what's most important is that you're happy. You know, although divorce has a high cost emotionally, maybe financially, society has tried to make it as easy and simple as possible. And it was easy in Jesus' day, perhaps even easier than it is today. But it is never how God intended marriage to be. He sets his standard for marriage so high that the disciples are left absolutely stunned by what he tells them. And he's going, Christ is going to this incredibly deep, and beautiful and satisfying place. So despite the difficulty of this topic this morning, stick with me to the end. Stick with me. Because I want you to see that trusting in Jesus means being vulnerable. It means being weak. It means being dependent. 
And when we come to Jesus like that, he will never fail us. He will never abandon us. He will never leave us. He is faithful always. He is faithful always. So let's read our passage. Mark 10, verses 1 through 16. And he left there and he went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter, and he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And they were bringing children to him, that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. I'm going to pray, and I'm going to ask that everybody in this room pray with me today, because this is heavy. So let's pray. God, we need you to understand this passage this morning. We need you to not be offended by your word, but to receive your word and to love your word. I pray you would accomplish that in us. God, use my words. Keep me from error. Use my words to convey this as you have intended it to to be conveyed. And may we all see something more beautiful, something more valuable about Christ by the time, when this time is over. In Christ's name I pray, amen. So Jesus is finished in Galilee. And here's a map up here. Galilee, you can see in the north. Forgot my laser pointer. So Galilee's all the way up in the north, and he's traveled down to Judea in the south, and he's gone across the Jordan River into Perea a little bit. He's hanging out here teaching now, no longer focusing on Galilee, but focusing on the people of Judea as he makes his way into Jerusalem and towards the cross. And just like in Galilee, he starts by teaching them. But I'm going to do something a little different today. I'm going to skip 11 verses and go right to when he's talking about the children, and you'll see why. So we're going to start with verses 13 through 16, because the, the principles here, I want to permeate everything else that we read today. All right. The crowds began to bring Jesus' children. Verse 13, they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. These children, just like... Uh, we saw last week in Mark 9, verse 36, these children are toddlers and babies. 
totally helpless children. And the disciples are rebuking the parents for bringing children to Jesus, for bringing babies and toddlers to Jesus. And they are again, as we saw last week, they are again caught up in this exclusivism. Like they are somehow better than these others. They forgot the words of Jesus that we just read last week, that, that Jesus had just spoken to them recently from Mark 9:37. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. How proud these disciples that they would turn the children away. They keep thinking that they are the ones who deserve to be in, God's, in Christ's presence. And to be in Christ's presence, you have to earn your way there. Christ must have chosen them because of how good they are, how faithful they are. Man, how wrong these disciples are. They have got it totally upside down, and they are not expecting Christ's response to follow their rebuke. So look at verses 14 and 15. When Jesus saw it, saw these disciples turning away the children, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Jesus becomes indignant with them. He becomes angry. Indignant means to visibly vent your anger. So you're not brooding. It's coming out. You're, ex- you're exploding with anger almost. So Jesus is getting angry here, and he's showing it. He's letting these disciples know how angry he is. You know, and the, th- the thing that makes a person angry reveals a lot about that person, doesn't it? What's making Jesus angry here? It's that someone would, uh, would turn away the helpless and the vulnerable. He is angry for th- this rebuke. And so he's showing that he is compassionate in his very nature, that he would do anything, that he's even willing to get angry at his followers to bring in the powerless, to let them come to him. He says, let them come to me. The kingdom of God belongs to people like them. So I think a lot of times we've heard that, that these little children, people like these children are people who are innocent, who are humble, who are very trusting, who are kind of inherently faithful. But that's actually to miss the point of what's happening here. Because those qualities are moral achievements, right? So if Jesus receiving me was based off of how humble I am or how trusting I am, man, I don't have much hope. I'm much quicker to trust in myself. I'm much quicker to be proud. I'm much quicker, I am, stained with guilt. So I don't qualify if those are the parameters for which I can enter the kingdom of God. What allows us to enter the kingdom of God? The people that Jesus is looking to receive. Childlike faith is dependence, is being weak, is having nothing that you can give to Christ on your own. He gives to you, and you have nothing to give in return except your dependence, except your need. And so that's what he's saying about childlike faith. That's the kind of faith 
that it takes to enter the kingdom of God. Vulnerability, helplessness, neediness. Not trusting on our moral achievements, but Christ's moral achievements. And so we, in our dependence, all we need to do is simply crawl up onto the lap of Jesus and let him embrace us. That is what childlike faith is. Because where else can we go? Who else do we have? Who is going to love us and care for us like Jesus can? There is nowhere else. So why do we go wandering around trying to find satisfaction elsewhere? A child stays in the lap where there is love, where there's security and provision. And outside of this lap is death. That's childlike faith. Staying in the lap of Christ where there is love and provision and security. Look at verse 16. And then he took them, these children, these babies in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. So he takes these little toddlers and just as the parents had wanted, he touches the toddlers and his touch indicates that any sickness or deformity or infirmity, whatever, has been healed. He has provided for them physically. But then Jesus goes beyond what the parents were asking, doesn't he? He blesses the children. The parents weren't asking for a blessing, but Christ blesses them. And this is a spiritual blessing. So Christ is providing for these children physically and spiritually as a whole people. These children who were the least in society, he is regarding as a full person, blessing them physically and spiritually, body and soul. So now having that in our mind, childlike faith and Christ's blessing to his children, Let's go back to verse 2. And the Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? These Pharisees show up looking to trap Jesus. It's not a friendly confrontation. Trying to find a way that they can condemn Jesus in the people's eyes to win favor over the crowds. And the question that we read in our text in, in Mark, it's a little bit misleading because it's a sort of a, an abbreviation of the fuller question. Um, everybody Jew, or sorry, every Jew knew that divorce was lawful. Nobody questioned that. It was clearly allowable as we're going to see later. But Matthew 19 verse 3 gives us a little bit more on clarity on what the question actually was. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause. Divorce for any cause. Look at verses 3 and 4. And he answered them. What did Moses command you? They said Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Well at this point we need to look at what Moses commanded. So I'm going to ask you to open your Bible and turn to it. Deuteronomy 24. Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. When a man takes his wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, 
and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. And she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her, in his, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination to the Lord. It's a bit of a mouthful. So first, the reason cited for a man to divorce his wife is indecency. It's a little vague in our English, but the Hebrew gives clarity. Indecency means specifically sexual misconduct. The way that that manifests in marriage is adultery, or the primary way is adultery. And then the New Testament builds on that grounds that it's adultery that are the grounds for divorce. And we'll continue to build on that. So according to Moses, a husband may divorce his wife over adultery. Now we've got to do a parenthesis right here. Because this passage from Deuteronomy 24 sounds really misogynistic. It sounds like a woman has no say over what happens to her. Like the husband can just do whatever he wants and divorce his wife. And the woman's like, all right, well, I've got no rights here. Now I want to show you that this law is actual, actually an incredible mercy given by God. It's beautiful, in fact. So God is clearly looking out for the woman in this passage because the ultimate consequence of adultery is found in Leviticus 20.10. If a man commits adultery with, his wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. Those two who committed adultery shall be put to death. Under the law, a man or woman should be stoned. So what we have in here in Deuteronomy is a way for a husband after his wife has committed adultery, to quietly send his wife away if he found that she cheated on him. It is a mercy for the husband not to have his wife killed if he wants her to live. So if he's wanting to extend mercy, he can divorce her and send her away. If he's not wanting to have mercy, he can bring her before the people of his village and kill her. Now, for the man, there is no such provision. If the man commits adultery, he will die under the law. That's his consequence. So let's close that parenthesis. Deuteronomy 24 is not an encouragement to divorce. It's not be free to divorce, but it is a merciful ruling given by God over the fallout of an unfortunate divorce given for sinful people. It's a mercy. So through the years, this law from Moses and Deuteronomy, it began to be interpreted a little more broadly, and traditions evolved, and marriage and divorce both became more and more misogynistic in nature. So listen to this passage written, uh, this tradition that's written down in the Mishnah. It's a book of traditions that are later added to the law, the traditions of the elders. He may divorce her, even if she spoiled a dish for him. 
For it is written, because he hath found in her indecency in anything. Rabbi Ikaba says, even if he found another fairer than she. For it is written, and she shall be, and it, <laughs> what is, I think I have a typo there. And it shall be if she finds no favor in his eyes. So you can see that this passage takes scripture out of context, misquotes it. It's made to fit the desires of sinful men. And then it's taught as if it were law. Jews began to take this tradition as a license to divorce for any reason at all. A spoiled dish. So if they no longer found their wife attractive, if their wife no longer was bearing them children, simply if their wife annoyed them, they could divorce her. They got rid of their wives in the same way that we would get rid of an old shirt. This tradition was wickedly adopted by many Jews, including the Pharisees. They would toss their wives away, and Jesus is not having this nonsense. So he aims to recover God's will for marriage rather than argue about how we can get out of a marriage, right? The Pharisees ask what is permissible, and Jesus shows them what is commanded. Verse 5. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote this commandment. Jesus is making clear that Deuteronomy 24 is not given to them as an excuse for divorce. Because they had hard hearts. Because they had hard hearts, God gave them mercy. And so Jesus decides to go deeper. He, he goes underneath the law, he goes beyond the law to a place that is far more ancient in verses 6 and 7. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. I'll read one more verse. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. So Jesus dives down underneath the law and he appeals to that which came from the very beginning, to that which came at creation. And he quotes Genesis. He's quoting Genesis here. He's not deducing what Scripture says. But he is saying what Scripture says with authority, as if one who gives law, the will of God set forth in creation. This is what he's communicating to the Pharisees. The will of God set forth in creation supersedes the law. Man and woman, equal in value, have been given marriage so that they can come together in a complementary, intimate way to both bear the image of God and to have union with God. You know, the law told us to honor father and mother. Marriage that God has given says, leave your father and mother and hold fast to your wife. So you see how this order of creation supersedes the law already. Because in marriage, unlike anything else, two become one. A new creation. You were individuals before and in marriage you become one flesh. A new creation. 
Look at verse 9. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. God joins husband and wife. God joins them together. So we may choose to date each other. We may fall in love. We may plan a wedding. But it is God who makes two become one flesh. And if it is he that is uniting them, man and woman, husband and wife, let no man separate them. And this is Christ's mic drop. He says this, drops the mic, and he leaves. He's done with the Pharisees. But the disciples are confounded by what Jesus is saying here. So they ask him again, uh, what, what are you talking about? Explain it to us. Elaborate it for us. Look at verse 10. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. So he as it, uh, every time he enters a house, it's time for him to teach the disciples more clearly, to open the, his, his teachings more fully to them, unveiled. And so he does it, and he goes to a place way more radical than they ever would have imagined, verses 11 and 12. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So if you take this text straightforward, it says that if you get divorced, you should stay single. Because if you remarry, you commit adultery. He's not forbidding, he's not just forbidding remarriage after divorce He's also removing any presumptions that the Pharisees might have had for divorce in the first place, right? They wanted to get rid of their wives so they could marry somebody younger or better looking. And he's saying, if you do that, you're committing adultery against your first wife. But it doesn't just stand there. It's not a, he's not qualifying it like that, is he? He's saying that if you divorce your wife or your husband and marry another, you commit adultery. And there are no exceptions given. It's hard. This is an ultra-conservative teaching. And it stunned the disciples. Uh, Look at Matthew 19.10. Gives you the disciples' response at this point. And they say, If such is the case of a man and his wife, it is better not to marry. They heard Jesus' teaching, and their jaws hit the floor. Who? Nobody has elevated marriage to such a high standard. Who can bear it? Who can live under this high standard? It's better not even to get married if this is the standard for marriage. That's what they're saying. They're stunned by this. You know, but Jesus is not thinking about marriage on the basis of how one can be nullified. He's thinking about marriage on the basis of how it was designed, what its purpose is, that it was made inseparable by God. And what is this purpose that has Christ so enraptured? Well, we've got to go to Ephesians 5 now. Ephesians 5, verses 31 and 32. Therefore, 
A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. What is hanging in the balance is the gospel. This is the gospel. This is why Jesus is so unwavering about what marriage is, on why it should be unfailing, and no man should separate it, because he has a bride, the church, and he has come for her, and he will never fail her, he will never abandon her, he will for no reason divorce her. Divorce in his mind is absolutely inconceivable. And our marriages, my marriage to Meg, and your marriages are reflections of Christ's marriage to his bride, the church. To show the world the commitment he has for his bride, the selflessness he has for his bride, that's what our marriages are, a reflection of that. But how often do we, church, how often do we whore after other gods? How often do we forsake Jesus for foolish drivel, like TV, like people's affections, like fleeting pleasures? We sell ourselves to these other loves. How often, how many times have we spat in the face of Jesus and rejected him? And yet, He never, never sends us away, but receives us back countless times, endless times. He always forgives, and he always brings his mess of a bride back to him. And do you know that it's the Father who joined Christ with the church? John 3, verses 38 or John 6, verses 38 through 40. For I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Every one of you, if you have put your faith In Christ, God the Father has given you to the Son. We as a church have been united to our husband, Christ. Before the foundations of the world were laid, we were his bride. So what the Father has joined together, let no man separate. And go to Romans 8, and all of these things that could separate us from the love of God, but none of them can. None of them do. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And our marriages represent what Christ is to the church. So how can we let anything tear it apart? So knowing what this is, knowing that marriage is a reflection of Christ in the church, your painful unglamorous, mundane marriage to your spouse. Never let it fail. Fight. Fight for it. 
because we see how uncompromising Christ is about divorce. God has always hated divorce. Always. His judgments were falling on Judah because of divorce, because of their high divorce rate. Malachi 2, verse 16. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says to the Lord, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Divorce was never God's design, and he hates it. This imagery about a garment being covered with violence, it would literally be like if I stood here and my shirt and my pants were soaked in the blood of somebody that I just got finished murdering. And I'm up here trying to preach. That's what it'd be like. That's how much God hates it. That's how much of an abomination it is to him. And so we should be amazed at this point by Deuteronomy 24. That God is giving a provision to Israel that is against his will. God hates divorce. And yet, he's giving this merciful provision that if your hard heart prevails and you get divorced, there is mercy. So that when we break his law, there is mercy. All right. I know what I said. A lot of what I said has probably caused some pain in this room. Because these are hard things. Divorce has visited this church, I know. Many of us know the horrors of it, and you might even be considering it right now. So this is hard, and it hurts, but I assure you that Jesus' teaching, Mark 10, and my teaching today is not meant to rack anybody with guilt. Because there is forgiveness. God forgives everything. There is nothing that God will not forgive Mark 3.28, remember? Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of men and whatever blasphemies they utter. All sins, including the sins of adultery and divorce. Every sin is forgiven if we seek God in repentance. So if you have gotten divorced, if you have been remarried after divorce, there is forgiveness. There is always forgiveness. Now, at this point, I think that it's fair to point out two circumstances where the Bible seems to make room for divorce. Two cases. The first case is adultery, not because of the law. Matthew 19, 9, it does seem that Jesus allows for somebody to divorce in cases of adultery. But this is still because you have a hard heart. He is only giving this provision because of your hard heart. Christ's heart is that if your wife or your husband cheats on you, you bring them back. You take them back. You work towards reconciliation. Just as Christ has reconciled with you and forgives you again and again after our many adulteries towards him. That's Christ's heart when adultery breaks the trust of a marriage. 
We are to reflect our Savior. We are to die for our spouse rather than abandon her regardless of her infidelities or his. Now the second reason that divorce may be appropriate or allowable is when you have an unbelieving spouse and they insist on leaving you or abandoning you. You can find this in 1 Corinthians 7.15. And God says, in that case, if this person abandons you, then let it be so. God is a God of peace. And I have watched this happen two times to very dear friends of mine where the wife just abandoned her husband and left. It would be easier if the husband or the wife just died. The pain is so real. And it's messy. But in both of these cases, in adultery and in abandonment, I would say that Jesus' words remain true. And these are hard words. Jesus' words from uh, Mark ten eleven. If you divorce and remarry, you commit adultery. So if you have been divorced, remain single. Single unto Christ. He is your spouse. Devote yourself wholly to him. Live in freedom from him. Let your relational needs be satisfied by Christ. And I know that that's really hard. And I know that you could go online and find pastors that will tell you that it's okay to get remarried. But Christ's words are very straightforward here. But reckon them for yourself. Pray over them for yourself. There are many people that I know, some in this room, people that I love who have been divorced and who are remarried. That relationship would have started in violation to what Christ said. And so, it started in sin. But again, God is quick to forgive and there is grace. So when you stood at that altar again with somebody new, despite the sins of the situation, when you make your vows to one another before God, God makes two become one. So God takes that new marriage and he joins you together. So it is not right to divorce your spouse and call it repentance, your new spouse. It's right to repent and to live with your spouse in the freedom of Christ, in the freedom of forgiveness, enjoying your new marriage under God. So, even though your second marriage may have started out in sin, it does not disqualify you. There are remarried couples that I know with deeply committed godly marriages, and their marriage, their new marriage, is a clear testament to everybody about Christ and his church, about Christ's faithfulness. Their marriages are redeemed, and they are beautiful, and so nobody should condemn them in their new marriage, and neither does God. Remember the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4? Jesus met her. She had five previous husbands. The one that she was with right now wasn't her husband. 
a serial divorcer. And Christ offered her living water. He came for her. The events of that scenario, he came for her specifically to bring her into his bride, into the church. Christ wanted her despite the sordid past. So the point of this message is not divorce. It is Christ. It is Christ and his church. Jesus' love for his bride, it is unfailing. It will never fail. No matter how many times we commit adultery by loving other things, and we do it every day. He, He takes us back, and he loves us. And not only does he always forgive us, but this is amazing. Not only does he always forgive us, he always delights in us. We are the most attractive brides on the face of the planet. He is enamored by nothing like he is enamored by his bride. He delights in us. Zephaniah 3.17 says, The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will rejoice over you with singing. He will quiet you with his love. It's his song over his bride. So to switch metaphors, return to the beginning. Let us climb up onto the lap of Christ. And all of our weakness and all of our inability and all of our sinfulness and let his love and provision wash over us and let us receive it let's not try to earn or or give anything in return but totally depend on him for joy for eternal life for the strength to stay married one thing we know about all other things is that christ will never abandon us or divorce us. He is the unfailing husband. So if you're married in this room today, again I say, fight for your marriage. Sometimes it's going to feel like you're gutting it out. Gut it out. Fight for it. It's not given so it will be easy. And if you're married, you know. The fruit of your marriage may at some times seem only like pain, And when that's true, then you fall down on your knees before your Savior, your Savior, and you die to yourself and cry out to God for the strength to love them when they do not deserve it, to forgive them when they have done nothing to merit forgiveness. We depend on Jesus for the strength and desire to stay married, like a baby depends on their parents for love and for sustenance. And that's what it means to have childlike faith. You cannot do it on your own. And so you depend on him. If you're married, if you are single, where else can you go? Who else is going to love you and care for you like Jesus? There is nowhere. So why would we wander around looking for something else or someone else? Let us stay in the lap of our Savior and let his love 
and his joy and his security and provision wash over us and let him prove to you that he will never fail you and he will never leave you even if it seems that your marriage has failed you. Christ will never. So let your married life and let your single life be a trumpet blast to all creation of how faithful and selfless our Savior is for his church. That is the reason you are married. That is the reason you are single. So all creation would know how beautiful Christ is, would know how faithful he is for his church. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would not let us have hard hearts. Remove our hard hearts and replace them with a soft, tender heart that can receive your words and love them. That these hard words would be a joy to eat and to digest. Help us to love our spouses the way that Christ loves the church. To be so caught up in our Savior that we are transformed into his image. All of this, all of this for joy in you, God, that we might know and experience joy in you. And that joy would flow into our marriages, it would flow into our parenting, it would flow into our friendships and our work environments and everywhere else that we are. Because Christ died and gave himself for us. We thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen.